0: This is Academically Speaking, a podcast hosted by Dr. Theodora Regina Berry, Vice Provost and Dean of UCF's College of Undergraduate Studies. It features
1: inspirational stories from the college's faculty, students, and alumni about the transformational
0: power of education.
1: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Academically Speaking. I am Dr. Theodora Regina Berry, Vice Provost and Dean of the College of Undergraduate Studies here at the University of Central Florida. And with me today is Wayne H. Bowen. And we have big news. Yay! So, on Friday, February 9th, Dr. Bowen agreed and signed an agreement to serve as Associate Dean for the College of Undergraduate Studies. And we are so excited. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Dr. Bowen and then we're gonna chat for a wee bit and get to know Dr. Bowen um, as a scholar, as an educator and as a person and you know, sort of dig a little bit deeper into some of his likes and interests. So, Wayne H. Bowen is Professor of History and Associate Dean of the College of Undergraduate Studies at the University of Central Florida. As Associate Dean, he is responsible for developing and implementing policies and practices for undergraduate students at UCF and in the College of Undergraduate Studies. Additionally, he provides oversight for the university's general education program. Bowen is also a retired colonel in the US Army Reserve and served in Iraq and with NATO in Bosnia-Herzegovina. He received a BA in history from the University of Southern California and an MA and PhD in European history from Northwestern University and a master's in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. He is a specialist in modern Spain, focused on the era of the Franco dictatorship. That was a long period in history. We'll talk a little bit about that. Bowen is the author of nine books, six on Spanish history from the early modern era to the Cold War. He has also published more than two dozen articles in academic journals with subjects including the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and Great Power Relations since 1800. His articles have been published in 10 countries and translated into Spanish, Polish, French, and Turkish. Bowen is currently finishing a contracted book on Spanish workers in Nazi Germany and conducting research for a subsequent monograph on relations between the Spanish and Ottoman empires from the 17th to the 20th century. Bowen is an active member of the Central Florida community. He serves on the City of Oviedo Sustainability Task Force as a member of the Seminole County and Oviedo Winter Springs Chambers of Commerce and is an assistant clerk for the Seminole County Supervisor of Elections. He is a graduate of the City of Oviedo's Community Police Academy and a 2023-24 participant in the Seminole County Public Schools Community Ambassador Program. Welcome, Dr. Bowen.
0: Thank you, it's great to be here.
1: It's great to have you here. Um, and my understanding is that one of your proudest moments as a uh, individual connected to the college of undergraduate studies has been watching our graduates walk across the stage. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, one of the great things we have in this college is we take students who sometimes have a dream that doesn't work out. We help them rediscover a new dream. And so A lot of the students who come to us think that they have no way to graduate from UCF. They started on in a degree or a major, and they they encountered something, some obstacle they couldn't overcome. And so to see those students cross the stage, that's real victory for them. And and I would get most excited by the students who cross with no bling, no awards, no honor society, because I know that for them, the victory is just crossing the stage. And and for so many of them, they're first-generation students, so they're the first one in their family And so it's a victory not just for them but for everyone and they'll often have nephews and cousins uncles and aunts who say well if you did it i can too and so it can have real ripple effects across generations
1: and your insights on that experience come from your time having served as director for the interdisciplinary studies program tell us a little bit about that program
0: right so interdisciplinary studies is an incredible major and uh, where students can put together two or three different things if they have multiple interests, or they start in one area and are changing to another one. Um, And so it's great to see those students come in, um, often kind of lost, uh, and to say, you know what, we can build on what you've already done, and we can help you find a future in a career, in graduate school, Uh, And we have other majors as well. You know, for the general studies degree, it's for students who just need to finish. They've often changed majors multiple times, changed institutions multiple times. And we tell them, this is a way for you to finish as quickly as possible and then go on to achieve success. And and as we know, most jobs that require a degree don't care what your major is. And so it's mainly the thing here is just to finish. And of course, we're excited by our environmental studies program, uh, which next year will award the 400th degree since it began uh, six years ago. It's grown so much. We're now going to expand it into two new degree programs that we could talk about later if you'd like.
1: Absolutely. And and thinking about um, our uh, interdisciplinary studies programs, um, what might be three words that you would use to describe the students who are in these programs?
0: Well, I think self-directed, for sure. I mean, many of them will come to us from majors in which they, the departments or colleges said, these are the courses you're going to take, and they'll be very similar to the students sitting next to you in the classroom. When they come to us, though, we help them find a pathway that's unique to them. In fact, we've looked at this. No two students in our college take the same list of classes. Uh, And so each of them truly is is earning a unique degree. And so we help them figure out a way to explain that to employers, to graduate schools, often to their parents uh, who might have thought their children were going to be doctors or engineers, but now they found a more exciting pathway and they go on to do exciting things.
1: So in thinking about some of the things that our alums are now doing and what they're aspiring to do, um, talk to me about all the many pathways in which an, an ids major major or a, a bigs major or environmental studies major might take
0: well that we we try to start that conversation early with them so uh many of them come to us from the beginning as first year students especially environmental studies but increasingly in interdisciplinary studies a lot of times they know what they want to do they want to be uh, sustainability officers or they want to be entrepreneurs or they want to go to medical school and they have that path. But for other students, we talk to them about what are you interested in? What are you good at? And how can we put those things together for a pathway for you? And we also through the courses that we offer them, uh, uh, remind them that this is not a one and done. Your life is ahead of you and almost everyone changes careers. And so if you think initially you're going to be, uh, uh, working in a museum. Maybe seven years from then, then you'll be working for uh, a local government. And then five or six years after that, you might be working for a historic site. So um, the pathways will change. We try to prepare them to be flexible and adaptable so they can they can really have the ability to, to, uh, to control their lives hereafter.
1: Absolutely. So when you think about the future of Interdisciplinary Studies and the College of Undergraduate Studies, how do you perceive that? What, what does it look like for you in, in relationship to that? So let's think about, let's say maybe 10 years down the road, how would you perceive or dream that the College of Undergraduate Studies might evolve?
0: Well, I think we've really made a, a, a strong identity for ourselves in stepping into the gap so we try to look across the university and see where are students not succeeding and what are the reasons for that. Uh, sometimes it's because they honestly don't have the skills for the major they initially hoped to complete. In other cases, it's because their life situation changes and so they're no longer able to complete the degree, not because they don't have the competence, but because they're moving away from campus and they had planned to complete a degree that was, could only be done here. In other cases, they're coming to us from state colleges and the university doesn't quite have the degree that's the best option for them. And so the college, I think, has a real incredible role to fill here to help help students finish, even if it's in a different way than they began. And so we'll continue to look for new degrees. You know, we have uh, a proposal um, that's nearly finished uh, for a leadership degree, which students can complete entirely online. Um, And I think for students who initially think that, you know, the College of Business or the Rosen College of Hospitality or other degrees on campus are for them, but their life situation changes or they want a more broad-based degree, we can be a good good compliment to them. In most cases, if students are able to stay on the original pathway, they should do so. Mm -hmm. If you wanna be a doctor and you're a biology major and that's working out for you, we would never tell you change to one of our majors. But if your heart's changed, or you face an obstacle you can't surmount, then come talk to us and we can figure out a way to help you graduate.
1: And I think those are two very uh, important ways in which we could certainly continue to serve our, our student body. But I'm also thinking about the fact that the world has changed so much and the way in which young people go to college isn't the way in which you or I went to college. You know, I remember getting stacks and stacks of brochures Um, when I was in high school, all these colleges that were interested in me, at least taking an interest in them, if not coming to visit them or if not applying, right? But now students are developing their own idea of what they want their life to look like when they finish. And it might not necessarily fit neatly into some particular box anymore. Um, In addition to that, now we have Uh, the explosion of artificial intelligence in higher education and students are using it to their advantage to develop ways in which they can now sort of see the world and all the things that they can do. Um, How do you think this sort of expansion of development and access to knowledge will change the way the College of Undergraduate Studies functions?
0: Well, I know we've heard from some of our admissions uh, folks that students come really interested from the beginning in finding their own pathway, and they're interested in three or four different things. And rather than picking one major or two majors where they'll be here for five or six years, they're interested from the beginning. And so we're really seeing a shift with interdisciplinary studies, BA and BS, to students choosing it earlier in their career. Uh, In some cases, figuring out from the very beginning that they don't have a pathway that fits one of the existing majors. And so I think we can be there um, to say this is an option for you. And you can take courses across multiple colleges and you can add minors and certificates and still finish in four years in a way that prepares you for this world that's changing so quickly. Um, And again, you know, it's we just need students to be aware that you may have a job in mind that you want to do, but that job may not be here in five years.
1: Absolutely.
0: You may have a graduate program in mind and that graduate program may not be here in five years. So spend your time developing the skills and the interests that will enable you to be adaptable. Um, And then hopefully you'll be able to go on and and continue to learn throughout the course of your life as the world changes.
1: And and we're seeing where now even young people are putting things together that we wouldn't even imagine that, the two things would fit together neatly. And yet, as they are developing these ideas about, well, for instance, um, my niece, who is in college, um, is very interested in theater and drama, but wants to focus more on directing, but is also looking at creative writing and also looking at African-American studies. And one might think, how well do those things fit together? But the way in which she's envisioning the world, those things have some synergy that will lead her down a path that she wants to go. And we're finding that in talking to a lot of young people, had a wonderful conversation with uh, one of our IDS students, Lucy Blanco, who did essentially the same thing. She put together some pieces of things that she thinks are gonna help her build the skills toward getting into law school. The, the world has changed so much in relationship to how students are conceptualizing the kind of knowledge and skills they need in order to move forward. So I wanna talk a little bit more about your experiences um, and do a bit of a shift in this conversation. Uh, you retired from the Army Reserve. Uh, How many years did you do? 30 years. 30 years. Wow. Well, thank you for your service.
0: Thank you for paying my salary all those years.
1: (laughs) Not a problem. Uh, I might be looking for it in retirement, by the way. But anyway, um, you got to the rank of colonel, which is a huge deal. Not a lot of people get to that rank. Um, How did that experience influence your leadership style?
0: So, so the Army, along with all the military services, is an incredible place to work with people of different backgrounds. I mean, uh, it was the, the first place where I really experienced diversity in a comprehensive way. And you know, we would go on missions and there are people from every state across the country and every background. And and uh, so that was really a, a, an important developmental experience for me. And I also saw all kinds of leaders, terrible ones and wonderful ones, and ones who I would... Um, follow, as they say, to the gates of hell and others that uh, it would be like going to hell if I was with them. Sorry for my language. It's okay. um, so, you know, and I had leaders who were the most extreme micromanagers to those who were the most extreme delegators who would give me, you know, one word of guidance and then I wouldn't see them for three months. And so it really helped me to become adaptable. Um, but also throughout those 30 years, I always felt like I was part of a team we all wore the same uniform, and regardless of rank or background, the single-minded focus on fulfilling the mission, whatever it was, was something that has really helped me in higher education. Because universities are full of people who are highly skilled in their fields and experts in their disciplines, but it can be a challenge for them to come together for a common goal. So I think the military background was really helpful in preparing me for that, and also to realize that commanders in the military or supervisors in, in higher education might make decisions I disagree with, but it's still my obligation to fulfill them and to understand that sometimes those above me know things I don't. Mm-hmm. And so that knowledge has really helped me to you know move outside of myself and realize I have to work for the better of the institution and for the people we serve. Um, so those 30 years were certainly positive in that regard.
1: There is a lot of truth to that. And um It's also really helpful to know that there are a group of people that you get to work with who trust that regardless as to what the situation might be, be, that you have their interest at heart. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, working in that kind of environment, and particularly here in higher ed, where we all have sort of this one mission of serving our students and ensuring that they are successful, right? Um, And how we get there everybody has sort of their own idea about that. But at the end of the day, we follow the person in charge and hope that they have everyone's best interest at heart. Um, And so I think there's a lot to be learned from that experience, so kudos. Um, So let's talk a little bit about uh, your uh, scholarship. Um, You do work primarily connected to Spain, but have done some work around the Middle East um, talk to me about how you chose Spain in the Middle East as your research focus.
0: Well, I got into graduate school, uh, and was headed to Northwestern expecting to work on Germany and Yugoslavia in World War II. I thought it was a very interesting period of time. And, I, you know, German history was war my initial area of interest, then I got to graduate school and took courses and realized there were a lot of people working on German history. Every department it seemed had a German historian. It was a very competitive field and it, it, so much work was done in it I felt like I was would be uh, would disappear in, in this big field. Spanish history, on the other hand, especially modern Spanish history, was relatively relatively few people working on it. And so mm-hmm. I thought to myself and talked to my advisor, and we realized that um, there was still a lot of stories to be told in Spanish history and then totally selfishly, the food was better. The weather is better in Spain. And and uh, thinking about my skills, I, my Spanish was much better. Growing up in Southern California, taking several years of Spanish, I struggled to learn German. And so I thought, you know, oh,
1: the break in Fr- my heart, I thought, you know,
0: <laughs> the Franco regime is a is an intriguing um, uh, dictatorship. There's a lot of uh, connections there with German history, the initial area of my interest. And so... Uh, modern Spain proved to be a perfect choice for me. And I was able to write books that really there would not have been room for in German history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, it's been great. And then the connection to the Mediterranean and the Middle East was a natural one. Mm-hmm. Spain's yes. long-term connections to the region, mm-hmm. just across the Strait to Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. And then with the military sending me to the Middle East, uh, I was able to pick that up as well. So it's been a nice complementary field.
1: Well, I I could certainly see your fascination with it. um, But for the sake of our audience, um, I spent six and a half years in Germany, didn't learn any very little German outside of a handful of arias as a music major, um, because most of the arias we studied um, as a a voice major were in Italian and Latin. um, So very little German and learned the language very quickly, being immersed in it every day And so my Spanish, not so great. (laughs) I I have tried to pick it up probably about three or four times. I can read it well. I can somewhat understand it. But please don't ask me to speak it (laughs) because it does not go well. Um, But it's interesting that there was such interest in studying Germany when you were in graduate school and that, for all the spaces where there was little to no, uh, really in-depth study, Spain, I, I found that interesting. Um, so talk to me about the most interesting thing you learned um, in relationship to your scholarship about Spain.
0: Well, I guess over the, you know, the the decades I've been working on it, um, it's been interesting because, you know, the, when I started, again, thinking about German history, I was thinking about superpowers. You know, Germany for much of the 20th century was a superpower. The United States, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom. Spain hasn't really been a superpower for, for quite some time. I mean, we could say maybe 1648, you know, was kind of the end of that period. But nonetheless, the countries in the middle, mid-range states, uh have influence have opportunities have challenges um and so spain has always been in the mix and, and as part of the discussion even if it's not been able to drive events in the same way that the united states or the uk have been and in a, in, a, in, in that sense it's been more of a challenge for their leaders than for, for their populations to respond to world events so i find those stories much more intriguing um, and there's also, Spain's been much more involved than maybe people expect. So there were, I wrote a book about Spain's involvement in the American Civil War, that at various points, Spain almost got into the conflict. And you can imagine with its control over Cuba and, uh, and Puerto Rico, how that might have shifted things in the favor of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Same thing during the Second World War. Spain was on the verge of intervening on the side of the Axis. And you can imagine how vulnerable that would have made the British losing Gibraltar uh, potentially other, other conflicts. So it's, uh, bringing Spain back into the story of modern European history Mm -hmm. has been kind of the cause of my, Mm -hmm. of my career, because I think it legitimately should be part of the discussion, even if it's never been the decisive power. Mm
1: -hmm. But, you know, it's interesting because, uh, I remember my grandmother repeating something that a lot of people used to say all the time, but you don't really hear it anymore. Um, that the sun never set on the british empire yet there's still a lot of spanish influence around the world and particularly on this side of the world um how do you think that plays into sort of modern spanish um history
0: well it's interesting that you know spain's legacy goes back even farther in fact one of the titles that the king of spain philip the holds is king of jerusalem no I mean, it's a long list of titles if you if you look, and many of it over territories that Spain no longer controls, but Spain was deeply involved in the crusading effort. Um, the idea was, though, that Spain would follow the Spanish Road, not heading toward the Middle East directly, but to conquer North Africa as a pathway to liberate Jerusalem from Islam, you know, in the the 13th and 14th centuries. So Spain continues to be of global significance, obviously. Uh, Spanish is spoken very widely throughout the world, not just in the Americas, but in the Philippines, Mm -hmm. um, and parts of Africa. And so, uh, it's in some senses more globally significant than, uh, than people maybe might immediately think. So it's, it's an, it's an intriguing country and there's still stories to tell. And I've at least got one or two more books about Spanish history. Well,
1: all right. We're looking forward to the books. So we are now going to, um go into what I like to call my lightning round. This is an opportunity for uh, our listeners and viewers uh, to learn a little bit about you, just some basic information, um, answer the questions with the first thing that pops up on the top of your mind. So here we go. What's your favorite color? Blue. Ta-da. <laughs> which,
0: I'm, which I'm wearing, yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, favorite song?
0: Sounds of Silence by Disturbed. Not the original by Simon and Garfinkel.
1: Okay. I'm a Simon and Garfinkel fan, so... Okay. Favorite movie? Gladiator. All right. Favorite book?
0: It's actually three books, but the Lord of the Rings series by Tolkien.
1: Ah, okay. Favorite
0: actor? (sighs) Favorite actor. Um... That's a hard one. Uh, I guess I would say, uh, going back to Gladiator, maybe Russell Crowe, and he's continuing to have interesting roles, so we'll, we'll go with that.
1: Okay. A favorite author?
0: Well, if I can't say Tolkien again, um, then I would say H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, oh, yeah. Horror. Now, some of his stuff is challenging and problematic, but I think his, his uh, no one writes like him.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Favorite actress?
0: Mm, Emily Blunt
1: Okay Uh, Favorite
0: singer Well it depends on my mood I mean sometimes I'm listening to uh, uh, Harder stuff like uh, Metallica or Avenged Sevenfold Um, When I'm trying to calm down Maybe Adele Uh, It just just really depends on what I'm looking for
1: Hmm. Okay Favorite thing to do on a Sunday afternoon
0: Well, I uh, do like going to the movies with my wife. Um, occasionally, I like to play war games with friends. So, um, hanging out at home with the kids. Um, yeah. Yeah, that sounds good.
1: All right. Um, and last but not least, um, favorite television show.
0: Well, um, again, it depends on my mood. Uh, I'd say right now, uh, what we do in the shadows is a pretty, uh, pretty fun series to watch. Um, I, I like science fiction, so uh, I'm waiting for the next season of Andor mm. on Disney+, Plus, which I think is the, Andor is the best Star Wars by far, movies or series included.
1: Okay. All right. Um, so I have two final questions for you. The first one is what advice would you give current college students?
0: Um, it may sound like a, uh, a strange thing to say, but but hold on to your dreams, but don't live in them. In other words, focus on the thing that you have to do today to keep making progress. It's wonderful to dream about the days, you know, five or 10 years from now when you're going to you have your your vision, but what assignment do you have to do today? Who do you need to talk to? What project do you have to get finished? How can you do something toward that today?
1: All right. So my last question is connected to a series I saw probably almost now a year ago. Um, Laverne Cox likes to interview up-and-coming stars, artists, that kind of thing. And... Um, The name of her show was called If We're Being Honest. Um, And at the end of her show, she often asked her guest, was there anything that she should have asked that she didn't ask? So I'm going to ask you, was there anything that I should have asked that I didn't ask?
0: Well, well, you could ask me if I missed teaching. I haven't taught class since I came to UCF.
1: Oh, so do you miss teaching?
0: I do, I mean, I'm, I miss some things about it. I miss seeing the light come on in a student's eyes mm-hmm. when they grasp something for the first time or they see a connection. Um, I really enjoy seeing students over the course of two or three classes, mm-hmm. having them start as you know often as a, a, a freshman and by the time they're seniors, they've really matured intellectually and, and, uh, and emotionally. I miss those things. I certainly don't miss dealing with plagiarism you know, and and the the joys of teaching are wonderful, um, but I like to think that in the in my current role I can have a broader impact and help students in every class or certainly in many classes. Um, and I do like still giving guest lectures and visiting classes, and so at least having that connection with students in some way. Um, but yeah, I, I do. So it's it's a yes and a no.
1: Yeah, I I get it. I so get it, and I do miss teaching as well, but. Those things, never fun. All Well, Dr. Bowen, it has been a pleasure to talk with you on Academically Speaking and really enjoyed our conversation. And to our audience, thank you for viewing and for listening. This is Dr. Theodora Regina Berry, and you have a great day.